sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. It seems as though the Supreme Court is just chomping at the bits to take religion cases. They've been taking a lot of them lately. And here's one that you may not have heard about. It's called Kennedy against Bremerton. Here to talk about it, Bradley Girard, Litigation Counsel for Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Bradley, welcome to Freedom's Ring. Thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure. So this is another football prayer case. There was a Texas football prayer case years ago where we decided that the real religion in Texas was football, not prayer. But this comes out of Washington state, I believe, right? That is correct. The suburb of Seattle. So what happened that led to a Supreme Court battle over football prayer? Well, for seven years, Coach Joe Kennedy, who was an assistant coach at the public high school, started and kind of developed a practice of praying with his team. And kind of by the end of it, it became one where the players would all take a knee at center field. He would hold up helmets from both teams. He would give a motivational prayer, sometimes inviting the other coach and the other teams to come join in the prayer as well. The school district learned about it and said, you know, look, this is a problem. You can't pray with your students and with the team in such a way that causes them to feel pressure to join in. The school district said, we are happy to accommodate you. We want to find a way so that you can have your personal prayer. And the coach's lawyers wrote a letter and said, absolutely not. It has to be at the 50-yard line, right at the end of the game. It has to be able to be audible, and the students have to be able to join. Uh, the school district said, you know, look, for myriad First Amendment reasons, including to protect the religious freedom of the students, that can't happen. Um, and so they put him on administrative leave. He decided not to reapply for his job, uh, which is a one-year contract, uh, instead sued the school district and said that he has the absolute right to hold these public prayers, um, even though he describes them as personal and solitary. So, I mean, that seems the way you tell it to be a no-brainer in terms of the legal principles involved. And, and I gather that both the district court and the appellate court have ruled against the coach and said, no, you don't have a right to publicly pray with the students in this way, you know, what it is that, that you're trying to do, right? And that's right. Actually, the district court and the court of appeals um, both decided in favor of the district twice. Um, so they tried to take it to the Supreme Court early on in the case. And both courts have said, look, this is a public prayer practice. This is something that puts pressure on students. This is something that has long been settled, right? This is not a place in public high schools for this kind of prayer practice. The coach's lawyers continued to say these are silent and personal and private prayers. And the courts just repeatedly said, you know, that's just not true. If you look at the record, it is very clear that these aren't personal. These aren't private prayers. These are prayers that pressured students. And indeed, there were parents, there were students who came forward and told the district, you know, Thank you for stopping this practice because it made my kid feel pressure that if he didn't join in this prayer, he wouldn't get to play on the team, right? And so the district court and the court of appeals both 
twice said, yeah, it is settled law. This is an easy one. And the Supreme Court, despite the coach's lawyers continuing to say this is private, this is personal, this is quiet, um, have decided to take up the case on those, those false facts that a, a court of appeals judge even called a, quote, deceitful narrative. So it strikes me that there's a couple of ways that this could go down in the Supreme Court, because if they buy a narrative that this is somehow, you know, private prayer, they might issue a ruling and saying that under some circumstances, you know, private silent prayer is, you know, legally permissible, which arguably, depending upon the circumstances, it already is. So maybe... Maybe they get the case wrong, but they don't really make any headway in terms of the law. Perhaps the more dangerous thing is if they acknowledge, yeah, this was vocal, it was coercive, but we think it's okay. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, there really is a lot at stake here when it comes to the religious freedom of students and their families, right? There's minority religions, there are the non-religious, and there are plenty of people who are religion, uh, religious who might agree um, in principle with the coach's religion, but don't feel that, you know, this is an appropriate place right. for them to take part in a prayer practice. And I think that, you know, sorry, go ahead. I think when, you know, when we look at these things from the standpoint of the the dominant religion, we think, you know, there's really nothing wrong here. Um, I was on a panel that we put together years ago in Sacramento, and there were people of many different religions and faiths involved. And I'll never forget the story of a Muslim mother telling about her daughter coming home from, I believe it was like fourth grade, and asking for a Christmas tree. Because, you know, that's what Americans did. They did Christmas and they did it at school and it was so much fun, you know, and she wanted a Christmas tree in her home. And, and I'm thinking, you know, we don't send our kids to public school to have them enticed into a different culture and a different religion. I think that's exactly right. And the, you know, the principle of separation in church and state really protects these fundamental rights for all of us to choose whether and how we worship. And, you know, the example you gave is one that people of minority faiths do face all the time. But, you know, I, I want you to and the audience to think about in this particular context, just how much more extreme it is. Right. So. The coach at the end of the game says, all right, everybody take a knee. And everybody takes a knee at the 50-yard line. And the coach starts to pray. Now, if you don't want to take part in that, you have to stand up, walk away from that in front of your team, in front of the coach who decides how much playing time you get. And even more than that, you mentioned Texas at the beginning of this. There are a lot of communities where the high school football game is the community activity. So not only are you asking this the student to stand up and walk away from their team and their coach, but to stand out, say, maybe at the 40-yard line in front of their entire community and tell everybody in their community, I am not going along with that religious practice. And that's just something that, you know, it's a pressure that no nobody, but especially no high school student should have to face just to play sports. Well, they shouldn't have to face that kind of pressure to do anything. Yes, exactly. Um, exactly. So are you concerned that the Supreme Court might actually back away from concepts of non-coercion and rubber stamp, you know, green light this kind of public religious expression? Well, look, you know, we know that we have an uphill battle ahead of us, right? The court 
took the case. Now, we are confident that once we get the chance to tell the court what the facts actually are in this case, um, that it's not a matter of private, personal, solitary prayer, that this is a narrative that, you know, uh, his lawyers are pushing to try to open the door to, to prayer in public schools. We are confident that once we are able to really establish that, to show the court what really happened, that the court will recognize, look, this is, again, these are multiple areas of settled law over decades, and it shouldn't overturn it based on somebody saying this is a private practice when everybody can look and see and everybody knows this was not, this was a public, uh, very kind of large event. In the- I got to jump in here just for a moment and take my lawyer's hat off put my preacher's hat on and remind our audience, you know, who presumably are largely a Christian radio audience, about the teachings of Jesus with respect to public prayer. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't be like the hypocrites who make loud prayers in public. Go into your closet, you know, and pray in private to your Father in heaven. So, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric in our culture about, oh, the Supreme Court kicked God and kicked prayer out of public schools. And my quip has always been, and I'm sure you've heard this, it's kind of corny, as long as there are math tests, there will be prayer in public schools. So you can't kick prayer out of, you know, kids are going to pray if they want to pray. You know, they're going to, Lord, help me on this math test or, you know, whatever it might be. But, uh, you know, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a kind of culture of favoritism that makes some kids feel like they're outsiders, right? Yes. And that's what we don't want to ostracize or somehow, you know, punish kids because they come from a different religion or a different culture. Yeah. And, you know, look, I'll let you wear the the preacher hat here. That's not quite my specialty. But (laughs) I I will say, you know, this isn't a case about whether somebody has the right to, you know, these personal acts of religious worship. Of course they do. Right. We believe in that. So does the school district for the students, for the employees. If it is something that is personal, of course, that's important. But that's just not what this is, right? This is the question of whether somebody can have, somebody with this much power uh, and so much influence over these students can do something that is that public, that outward, and can pressure students to feel involved. And the answer to that is, you know, it's not good for anybody. It's not good for religious people. It's not good for non-religious people. It's just, uh, it, it really eats away at a fundamental principle that is enshrined in our Constitution, which is that everybody has the right to choose how and if and when to worship, and you can't, as a public employee, put that pressure on somebody else. Well, you know, this may seem like far-fetched to to many Americans, but especially in some of our urban areas, if, if this principle is allowed to develop, you're going to have a certain amount of balkanization where you're going to have different communities that gather together. So, for example, already, you know, there are places, for example, in New York, where you have enclaves of Orthodox Jews. And instead of just establishing religious schools, then they'll kind of flood and take over some public schools. And if you're a Christian in one of those neighborhoods, well, you're going to be subjected to uh, intensive Jewish religious practices. And the same could happen with Muslim religious practices or or anything else. And, you know, it just leads to 
more divisiveness in a culture where we desperately need to overcome divisiveness. And, you know, I think that's exactly right. And I do think it's kind of funny that people forget the real early proponents of the separation of church and state were themselves religious people, right? They recognized we don't want this sort of stuff happening in these public spaces because it is so divisive. We don't need the Catholics against the Christians and the uh, the Protestants, you know, different varieties of, of Christians against each other, right? We need to leave that to them, let people have that themselves. But the only way we can have a functioning society or public schools or something like that is to to really make this a personal choice and and leave it out of the public sphere in the way that it can cause pressure and can coerce people. So the court has agreed to hear the case, um, oral arguments, briefing. Uh, when, you know, we want to keep our eyes on this case, when are we expecting the case to be actually heard? So the court is going to hear it this term. Um, so we expect uh, the petitioner's brief, Coach Kennedy's brief, to be filed in the next week or so. And then the district will have 30 days to respond. And oral argument will be held um, sometime in the last two weeks of April. The court hasn't set the date yet, but it will be sometime in the last two weeks. And then the court will issue a decision, you know, probably right around middle to the end of June. So there's a lot happening in a very short time. It is a very big case with potential um, enormous ramifications for such a fundamental um, principle of our democracy. Well, we will certainly circle back and keep our listeners posted as the case develops. Our guest today has been Bradley Girard, Litigation Counsel for Americans United for Separation from Church and State. We've been discussing the case of Kennedy against Bremerton, key Supreme Court case. So keep listening. We'll keep you posted. Thanks for being with us on Freedom's Rank, Bradley. Thank you so much for having me. And don't forget, friends, freedom is not free. Be informed. Get involved. Join the North American Religious Liberty Association, producer of Freedom's Ring, on the web at religiousliberty.info. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring. Freedom's Ring.